<laughs> that was so good. We had so much good stuff. Well, let's do it again, Peckham. Welcome back to another episode of Tuxedo Time. Where Chris forgets to press record and we do an entire and is, podcast and realize we're not recording. And it is time. <laughs> Second podcast edition. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Let's try this again. So today we're going to be talking about our company, Bold Creative. I think we need to switch spots so I can man the thing. Listen, listen, you didn't tell me to record, so I didn't record. It's your, you have one job. <laughs> no, I'm part of this podcast, 50%. You have one job. I set up all the cameras. I got everybody's thing. Anyway, I'm very excited to announce our sponsor for today's podcast, Cuts Clothing. <laughs> they hooked us up with a bunch of clothes for our recent helicopter trip, which you will see on YouTube. And it was great because we got all this clothes for the trip and it made my life so much easier because all the clothes matched nicely. It was all very high quality and I didn't have to worry about what I was packing. So thank you, Cuts. Yeah, they have a really nice selection of muted tones and neutrals for the shirts. You guys know that we love wearing black, white, and gray, but today we're actually wearing a little bit of a different color scheme. I thought I'd try a little something different. I think muted palettes are still neutral though. I agree, like, I think so too. That's neutral to me. Yeah, and so obviously this is neutral. Do you think that my flower socks with my Star Wars pants with my um, coast colored sweater is neutral? I think it's called fashion. Look it up. <laughs> so if you guys want to check out cuts, their t-shirts, long sleeves, sweaters, and hoodies, you can get 15% off with our special link, which is in the description box of the YouTube video. It's also in the description box of the podcast episode. If you're just listening and if you can't find it in either of those places, it's also on our website in our show notes, beckyandchris.com slash podcast, whatever episode this is these sponsors for our YouTube videos and our podcasts really, um, they help us be able to produce this stuff often because it's just me making this stuff. We don't have staff. We don't have editors. Uh, we're not ready to hire anybody yet. So it is you, Becky Peckham. It is just me. So one woman army. Yeah. So thank you cuts for supporting the podcast. This podcast is going to be about our old marketing company called bold creative, which we had from 2009 Are you recording? 2016. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was just I so looked funny. over, I was like, the button's green. I think it's supposed to be red. You're definitely recording. You're watching the countdown. It's two minutes, 53 seconds. God. Put the SD card in and it said, do you want to format? And I hit yes. And then it took forever to format. And I just forgot. And like, I thought I was like, oh, I did something. And then. Maybe we need to hire a podcast producer. Whose job literally is just to, to come in and push record. the button. Clearly you can't do it. Look, I pushed all these buttons here. Listen, I was listening to the same brain podcast today. Yeah. And they did the same thing with their podcast <laughs> with their sister. <laughs> they did. They're like, we've already recorded. We've already done this podcast. <laughs> and then their sister, their sister was like, I'm not doing this again. And they just like left and they had to like do it at a later date. <laughs> oh my God. That almost needs like road needs to come out with a thing that like shocks you when like it sees that you're talking to the mic, but it's not like not recording. <laughs> kind of like the electric fence that I hit a couple I'm of days sorry, ago and I got if, a shock and I was like, God, ah, what is that? You hit an electric, I hit fence. electric fence. Yeah. I've always wanted to pee on electric fence ever since Ren and Stimpy. God. Yeah. Always on the electric fence. Let's get back to okay. what we're talking yes, about. Yes, we're talking about our business. Our business, yes. Bold Creative. So Bold creative. Uh, Chris and I ran and owned a micro marketing agency from 2009 until 2016. Seven years. Seven years. It was called Bold Creative. It was kind of an accident. Well, I think you just set the stage on how it started. Okay, so let's set the stage. So I- You, a young Becky Peckham. <laughs> I graduated high school. Then I went into graphic design. I graduated graphic design. I graduated uh, graphic design from college. I was a young graphic design obsessed Becky Peckham. Yes. I went into my first job at a marketing company. I wanted to be a designer. I wanted to be a good designer. I wanted to be an art director. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be the best. There you go, yeah. Sorry. 
you know? Yeah, happens. She was like, I must be better. But that's called masturbation, by the way. Wait, Learn what? that from therapy. Wait, what? <laughs> masturbation. When you, when you say you must, like you must be the best. Uh-huh. Like I failed, therefore I must prove that I can do this thing to other people. A young me, graphic design obsessed. I loved it. Very passionate about graphic design. Went to work at a marketing company for two years. And ultimately that company ruined graphic design for me. Um, we talk about burnout a lot on YouTube, creative burnout. Like burnout before burnout was a, like a, a, an established thing um, or so, a popularly talked about thing. Right. So like hustle culture is like a big thing now, right? Where you like, you know, Gary Vee says you have to eat shit and, you know, work really hard and you stay up all night or whatever. And that wasn't really a thing back in the day, but it kind of is what happened when I worked at the marketing company. So I was um, on a salary at the marketing company and I was a pretty quick designer. I could turn around stuff pretty quickly um, because I trained for Skills Canada. So I had like a pretty efficient background. I was used to working under pressure in short periods of time. So I was able to turn around projects pretty quickly. So Skills Canada is a trades competition in Canada that does trades and technologies, which includes graphic design. So they have a big annual competition for high school and college levels. And Becky would do extra training um, through her college program in anticipation for skills. She ended up winning the provincial uh, division of this competition two years in a row and ended up going and competing nationally. So that extra training plus her actually going to nationals, she would do these mock projects and it was all about time management, efficiency, and then getting an idea out and into a designed concept while making it all technically as perfect as possible, you know, file types and um, design rules and whatever, all things that you know about. Bleeds, crop marks, yeah, cut marks. All of it, and it had to be done in six hours. Yes. So going into the marketing company, I was really quick. So when it came to doing final art, it came to putting together projects, I could bang them out pretty quickly. So what ended up happening was that uh, because I was fast and because I was on salary, I ended up having to stay late a lot of times to finish projects that were going to press. So, so they didn't like log your hours and pay you extra. No, I was just on salary. They're, you were just getting paid a salary. Yeah. So instead of working nine to five, I oftentimes I worked nine to seven or nine to six, nine to seven, nine till 10. And even the evenings where I worked till 10 or 11, I'd ask my art director, Hey, like I worked till 10 last night. Can I come in late? And I was met with the response, suck it up, Becky. We all have to come in at nine o'clock when we work late at night. It's like, yeah, but I'm getting paid like close to minimum wage when you work out. Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's my problem with it is that when you're paying somebody on a, whether they're paying on a salary or not, if you're paying, paying somebody close to minimum wage and they are doing all these extra hours to the point where it could, you could theoretically less make effectively less than minimum wage. Like that's a problem. Mm -hmm. I was tired. Like I remember going in there in the mornings after working till like 10 o'clock the previous night doing final artwork. I was so tired. Like if any of you guys listening to this are a designer, photographer, or an editor, YouTuber, you know what it's like to sit down and edit at the computer for, for eight hours. Your brain is fried by the end of it. If you can bang out a 12 hour day, like respect because it's hard to sit there and process and work your brain like that because it's kind of like a monotonous task. The reason why I would have to stay kind of late at these jobs, the, the way it works in, in the marketing world is when you're doing a job for a client, um, you do the job. And a lot of times you do these like mock-ups with stock images 
uh, low resolution photos because you don't want to commit to paying for the stock photo if the client doesn't approve it, right? Because that's extra expense on the company for um, photos and images that may not get used. So we do these mock-ups with like a bunch of low res stuff and then we send it off to the client. If they say, yes, we like it, we approve it. Then we get the approval to go and purchase the stock images. And then we have to remake the thing in a high resolution format that's correct for whatever way it's gonna be printed. So whether it's digitally or press. A lot of times we'd finish these projects and we'd be waiting for client approval, which is why we were always late. And because the client would have a deadline of, you know, this project must go to press on this day and it must be there by the morning so they can turn it around by the next day or the day after. It was up to us, the designers, to stay late and finish the project so that the printing company could get the work first thing in the morning so it could go on press. So a lot of times we would do the work in the day or the day before and we'd be waiting for client approval. It'd be 5, 4.30, 5, 6 o'clock approval will come in. We'd order pizza in the art department <laughs> and we would bang it out. We'd do the final art. And it was, like I said, it wasn't just like exporting the file in a high resolution format. It was basically rebuilding the file with the, with like high resolution proper images. So basically kind of remaking a lot of it. And after we did that, the writer would have to proofread it and make sure that there was no spelling mistakes. And we probably had to do that once or twice. We'd print it off to make sure everything looked okay. And then it would be ready for press and the art director might have to look at it as well. So oftentimes that took hours and hours, which is why we would be there late. Another one of the reasons why we'd have to come in the next day when we weren't allowed to sleep in was that if that project went to press, we'd have to go to the printing company and proof it before. So they'd run a copy off. We'd go and look at it, make sure that the images are right, the order is right, there's no spelling mistakes, we'd proofread it really quickly, the colors look good, and then we'd say, yes, do it, and they'd run the whole job. So we were waiting around a lot and then having to work late into the night to finish these projects because we were the ones who were eating the shit because if we didn't eat the shit, everything else kind of got messed up from a timeline perspective. Sacrificed your own schedule to stay for the good of everybody else. Yes. Yeah. And I get that. That's the like, life of a designer though. Yeah. But also like in early in your career, whatever you're in, whether it's graphic design or medicine or anything, there's always a level of, of dookie eating that you have. Dookie. To- <laughs> yeah. You, you have to, you have to eat poop. Yeah. Yeah. And I get that. But it's also like, you know, just because it's always been this way for, and, and just because I had to do it this way, there's always that mentality, oh, that everybody after me has to also do that because I also had to do this. But right. That's kind of a stupid way to think. Yeah. So anyway, at the marketing company, I wasn't technically allowed to be freelancing because they didn't want us to be poaching clients. So they'd have these like big clients with big budgets, whereas like as a freelancer, like I was working with clients with smaller budgets who couldn't afford a big marketing company who just needed like- Like a company of one, just like yourself. Yeah, exactly. Who, you know, had a budget for me and me being a photographer and a designer, I could, you know, give both services. Right. You're all, you're a one-stop shop. Yeah. Chris and I decided around that time when I was working at the marketing company, I was doing a bit of freelance that we wanted to start a streetwear company doing high-end printing techniques. We had like the custom, um, what did you say? Like spec packs? Yeah. We had spec packs basically that had all of the sizes and then the, the, the sizes and then the actual exact measurements, all the dimensions for the shirts. Yeah. And we developed those to go out to factories to get bids on who can produce these shirts for us. Right. And at the time, like we were seeing really, it's funny that we're working with cuts now because at the time 
there were we really wanted to see like long line t-shirts like longer shirts better fitting shirts yeah, because they were slender and taller yeah and it's funny because cuts are doing that actually what cuts is doing with their long line t-shirts and their slim fits and their nice fabric and all their sewn in tags like yep. and their little details like the little x that they have at the bottom like these are the details that we wanted to have in our shirts back in like 2009 or whatever mm-hmm. so after a couple of nights of, you know, sleeping on the floor in the studio and the marketing company started to notice, they said, basically, it's us or your business. And I said, peace. And you called their bluff. I was like, they, they said to me, <laughs> if you give up your business and start working harder here, we'll make you a junior art director. Because, like, it, because they knew that I wanted to be an art director. For like your $12 an hour. Yeah. And then I was Canadian, like, mm, yeah, which is like $10 American. Yeah. They were like, we can tell you're tired and you're not dedicated to this job. And I was like, yeah, I'm not. I really hate it here. <laughs> I cry in the bathroom. I fall asleep in the bathroom. Like I dread coming in here and it wasn't the people. It was just the work. It, that company ruined graphic design for me. I don't feel the same way about design as I did pre working at that company, Wow, which is really unfortunate. Would I feel the same way if I worked at a different agency? Probably. I just don't think I was ready for the industry. Yeah. It was just probably the industry as a whole. Yeah. Would have crushed you regardless. So back to bold. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start this clothing company. So we decided to purchase the screen printing studio, which we talked about in episode one of this podcast. Chris broke his wrist. Going and picking up the screen printing studio, renting a U-Haul on my U-Haul with my BMX bike in the back with my buddy Beats. Road trips from Hillsville, Virginia, all the way up to St. John's, Newfoundland. Slept with a rattlesnake skin. Yeah, all Broke those, your wrist on a mini ramp. All, it was a full-size vert ramp. Thank you very much. Oh, sorry. oh I'm sorry. Yeah. Like a 13 <laughs> I foot, wasn't there because thir- I was working at the marketing company and couldn't get the time off. <laughs> you were, weren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was during my last summer vacation during medical school. Yep. Anyway, we set the screen printing studio up in a rented space in downtown St. John's. So th- I want to talk about the studio for a second. So okay. uh, we did rent a studio on Duckworth Street, downtown St. John's. I think it was like 267 Duckworth Street. Mm-hmm. And I want to paint the picture about the studio real quick. So it was in this building that was very old. It was probably built in like, what? Turn 1800. Yeah, 1900s. It was very old and it was attached to a bunch of other buildings. And so when you walk in, there was kind of like a retail space in the front that was kind of like a fishbowl. There was like glass um, and it, there was like commercial carpet. There was like wood paneling on the walls. This was like- Painted like school, elementary school yellow. yellow like pastel yeah. yellow. It was not a, a good look in there. It with was basically- fluorescent lighting. Yeah, with fluorescent lights. So it was like a 1900s type building that had been renovated and like renovated in like the eighties to be some kind of commercial space. Yeah. So you walk in this room and then there's a door and then you walk into a larger room. So it was basically a big square room that was a communal space in the center with no windows. On the right, there was a small room that ended up being my office eventually that we rented that room. What, like maybe, <laughs> maybe like a 75 square feet maybe? Yeah, probably about that size. Yeah, a little less than a hundred square feet. Yep. And then on the left, there was another office and there was a left wall that had a hallway to a really sketchy bathroom, a quote unquote kitchen that we also rented to be our like screen washout and yeah. exposure room. And so that was before we did any handiwork. So I think I hired my cousin Mitch to build a washout booth. Yeah. And I was like, I need to make this waterproof. So he just basically lined it in like layer after layer of vapor barrier using tuck tape and essentially built this box around the, the sink and then taped it to the to the inside of the sink bowl to make like this waterproof enclosure. What we should have done is just gotten like a cheap shower from Home Depot. Yeah, that probably would have been better. Yeah. Yeah. So 
So that was the kitchen. And then towards the back of the room, there was three rooms across the back. Two on the left that we rented, which we tore a wall down in between. And then one on the right that the guy who we were subletting off of was like the guy who like was renting the full space from a bigger person. Right. He rented. For, he was renting from the owner and then we would basically rent from him our portion. And the, the two rooms in the back, we had to get the wall taken down. And that was interesting because that was before we did any like handiwork. So we were looking at this situation like they gave us their blessing to take the wall down. But your dad brought up, he's like, you don't know what you're doing. So like if this is a load bearing wall, you don't know that. Like if you take this down and then the whole, it compromises the structural integrity of this building, you're on the hook for that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, you're right. He's like, just see if the guy can provide you with somebody that you can pay to do it. So I went to the back to the guy and told him my concerns. He's like, oh yeah, I got a handyman. He can do it. So my agreement with the handyman, my gentleman's agreement, you know, handshake agreement was, hey, I got a broken wrist. I can't do any of this work. I need you to get this to a point where I can use both of these rooms combined so we can set up the screen printing studio. And he basically came in, sure, came with his sawzall, ripped the whole fucking wall down and then left it into a pile of, turned into a pile of garbage between both rooms. I'm like, dude, what am I going to do with these like long boards and these like in this lumber here and all this, this refuse? I can't like, I don't have a dumpster, let alone I can't, I got a broken wrist, man. I can't like remove all this. He's like, that's not what you pay me to do, man. You paid me to knock the wall. I was like, no, dude, I paid you to get it to a point where I didn't have to like have to deal with any of this. So that in my opinion, that includes taking all the garbage away. He's like, no, that's not how it works, man. I'm just like, oh my God. So lesson, moral of the story, always have a, a very descript uh, scope of work. Yes. Any agreeing time you do, anytime you have an agreement with somebody. Definitely. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that's one thing that we've learned over the number of years is mm-hmm. to be very clear with your agreement, your deliverables, your project scope, yep. the budget. So your poor dad had to come down and basically clean up this dude's garbage. And then he had to finish the edges because the edges looked like, look, literally was like a sawzall, like a, a reciprocating saw hole between the two w- rooms with like all just like jagged edges and like all the insulation, that old school, like shredded paper insulation, which mind you is extremely flammable. Yes. <laughs> well, that's why a lot of times when those, ha- when those uh, buildings downtown, when they catch on fire, they all catch on fire. Oh, they're all connected. They're all connected and they're all filled with that old insulation because that's what they used for insulation back in the day. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's like old newspaper, old newspaper and like horsehair. I'm pretty sure. I don't know, man. My dad was such a legend when we had that studio because he came down and fixed that wall. And then when we rented the office, he like laid all the laminate floor for me <laughs> and like helped me out. Like he was such a great help. I think that was for our first ex- like early exposure to like, like renovations. renovations. Yeah. yeah. And it was our first studio space that we rented. Yeah, our first space. Yeah. So this is to the point where we got before we realized that Chris wasn't recording. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> you just scared me because I thought that you were saying I wasn't recording again. I hope not. I hope you are recording. Yes, I'm recording. Okay. Um, so where were we? So we have the studio space. Oh, my mic still doesn't smell like cheese. Good. I had I to know check. Why it would. I had to check earlier if my mic smelled like cheese. <laughs> why? Well, you told me my beard smelled like cheese the other day. It did because you were eating cheese. <laughs> now, now I'm sensitive about it. <laughs> Okay, so uh, screen printing studio is set up. Mm -hmm. Chris is back from Virginia. The wrist is on its way to being healed, but it's still broken. Um, I think I have had surgery at this point. You had had surgery at that point. That's why you're in a cast. Um, I left my marketing job because I was sleeping on the floor of the studio and couldn't handle it anymore. I was calling in sick to work because I was up all night. We were working on shirts, trying to pay for this thing. You were a terrible employee, by the way. Oh, I was the worst. That's why I've been self-employed for... Yeah, but actually, you know, 
truth be told, I think that you were a valuable asset to their team. I think that you you undervalued yourself because... But we're moved on from that now. We are moved on from that. We got the screen printing studio because we had the intentions of having this streetwear line that we wanted to do fully custom. We're going to print everything ourselves. We wanted to do the sewn-in tags, the hang tags, the full branded thing. Yep. And nobody could, nobody could create the level of product we wanted on the island of Newfoundland. Yeah. And so what we decided the only way that we were going to be able to ha- make this happen was we would make our own custom blanks, blank t-shirts, mm-hmm. and we would print them ourselves. Yes. So the blank t-shirts would have our custom tags in them, all the sizes, custom, you know, sewn in or printed on the on the shirts, have our own like little, what are those called? The little like... Uh, oh, the little like... Logo. Little logo tags, tags on the bottom. On the bottom. Like the wraparound tags. Yeah. All that stuff would be already created into the blank and then we would print whatever we wanted on the blank t-shirts right and we were only going to order black and white and white we were just going to do very on brand for us oh 100 percent. we haven't changed no except for today we're just trying some new colors these are still neutral they are still neutral so we struggled for a really long time trying to find a name for the streetwear line we never settled on a name we never settled on we had a couple ideas we had some branding mock-ups nothing felt right Nothing was sitting with us well. No, but it's a classic case of overthinking. Oh, 100%. It this was our baby and we didn't. We wanted to have the perfect thing to the point where we stalled out and never settled on something and never launched the brand. And then we just lost interest yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, so during the time when we were trying to work on this clothing company, where we were like, well, we need to start making some money back so we can pay for these blanks. And pay for the screen printing and equipment. Pay for the screen. So we were like, well, let's start, A, I'm going to continue freelancing photography and graphic design is what I was doing at the time. And we'll start doing t-shirts for people because we're doing printing processes that nobody else on the island is doing. So and we had to like dial in our process and we too. did. So it was a great practice for us to be able to do shirts for other people. Right. So, so we needed an umbrella company to cover all of our multifaceted monstrosity that was our lives at the point. So design photography, we were doing a video, little bit of video, bit yeah. of video too. And screen printing. Right. And eventually wide format printing for photograph reproductions and canvases and stuff like that. But that wasn't until a little bit later. Yeah. So in comes Bold Creative. Pulled the name out of literally nowhere. We're like, um, let's just call it, I don't know, Bold Creative. Cool. I think you just came up with it randomly. Like, all right, fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a temporary company anyway. It's just something to hold all of our business stuff. Yeah. And it's funny looking at our channel now because our channel is a bit of a mess like that. But But Bold was too. So instead of calling it like, marketing company we call it bull creative and then we just set shiny visuals on the bottom because that was like the best little container that we could put all of the stuff into because it wasn't a graphic design company we weren't a photography it was all of it it was multimedia yeah and multimedia is a terrible word for for a business so shiny visuals is what we it go. was a bit quirky kind of like tuxedo time right yeah it was yeah, yeah. It's still on brand yeah and that was also around the time where like the shiny graphic graphic uh motif was really in oh yeah big with time. like the reflection web 2.0 web 2. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that I don't know. yeah so bull creative was birthed out of our vaginas and my proverbial vagina <laughs> your proverbial vagina my butthole. <laughs> and uh we started doing work for people um at when we started the screen printing studio, we didn't have the office portion of it. And eventually we added the office portion. So I was working at the studio a couple of days a week, bring my laptop down. I would do photography, graphic design. We do photo shoots in the main uh, communal area. We do these t-shirts for people. And then 
as we were kind of doing that and overthinking about this clothing company, we completely lost interest. We lost steam. And I think we burnt out because we had taken on a huge job, a huge screen printing job to pay for everything. Yes. And it was a friggin' nightmare. Oh my God. All over. Yeah. Somehow like we ended up with, well, we were like, this is going to be awesome. This is a great opportunity for us to do something real cool and different. We, yeah. And then like, oh my God, so many things went wrong with that job. It was like, we bit off more than we could chew from a, from a production standpoint. We were doing like all over print t-shirts, multicolor, all over print t-shirts, multicolor, all over print hoodies. And I remember like it was your birthday and the screens were ultra complex with like halftones mm-hmm. for shading, like for, you know, cause like anybody, so in order to, Why don't you give them a, a brief like rundown of yeah. the scope of the job? So, so in order to like, if you don't know how to, so screen printing itself is a bit of an art and the way we, it works is you take this like liquid emulsion that's light sensitive and you coat a screen with it, which is basically just literally a stretched piece of silk screen over a wooden frame and you coat it with this liquid and it has to be like an exact thickness. So you get really good at like sort of what that feels like. It's almost like plastering. Mm-hmm. And then you let it dry. And once that's air dry, then you have screens that are like being stored in the dark because they're light sensitive. Now you print off transparencies with transparent, uh, basically like overhead transparency material, like cellulose, uh, with a printer, it's black and white. And then you take that, that image and you, put the image between a UV light source and the screen that's light sensitive. You're doing this in the dark, by the way. And we had a vacuum. We, I built this vacuum table basically to, to suck the, the screen back down onto the transparency. And then you shine a UV light through and that'll basically expose the screen and where the UV light hits the emulsion, it hardens it and cures it. But where the, the transparency where you printed off the design that doesn't get exposed. And then you basically get a pressure washer and spray off the screen and create this image. So you have basically a holes in the emulsion that ink won't go through, but the screen is open to the mesh where the ink, where the ink does go through to make the designs. So most people, when they have a screen printing studio, they have standard sizes of screens that they have. So they like, you could print off a transparency on like a normal printer or like a, a right. printer that could do like 17 inches wide. But because we were doing specialty printing, we had screens that were four feet by four feet wide, which meant we needed a wide format printer to be able to print these transparencies. And then we also had a 54 inch wide dryer. So every element to your print size could only be as big as the smallest piece of your production line. Yeah. And we wanted to do these all over prints, which were really hot at the time. So we ended up having a massive setup. So huge platens, huge screens that were literally like four feet by four feet huge dryer with a 54 inch wide conveyor belt dryer. And it was, it was in massive squeegees. Yeah. And when you're screen printing, I'm not sure if you talked about this, but the way it works is you have a platen. So there's this piece of wood that's on this arm. You spray it with a little bit of adhesive. You put the shirt on it. So like the piece of wood goes through the the body of the shirt. You kind of smooth it out. You bring your screen down, you squeegee the ink on, you pull it up either do your second color, you flash cure, yes. or you take it off and put it through so the dryer. So one screen is you made for each color. And then you have to, if they are, if you do um, multiple colors, you have to line the colors up, which is called registration. So that's another big setup thing. Oh, I'm sure I remember all this oh stuff. Oh my God, out. I know. So with the, with the normal t-shirt companies, right? Their screens and platens are a certain size to fit t-shirts, so they don't go over that. But because we were doing large printing, all over printing, 
we couldn't use a platen like that. We actually had to make a custom platen, which the shirt didn't go over, it laid on top of, which meant that we had to glue the insides of all the shirts with spray, so, adhesive. With spray adhesive so they didn't move around. Oh my God, we had a leaf blower <laughs> and we had a frame from an old stool and we basically put the leaf blower in to inflate the shirt like a giant inflatable arm tube, man. And we put it over the stool. The, the stool and then we'd spray the inside with spray adhesive and then we'd pull it off and then so the shirt would kind of come together perfectly. Yeah, if they didn't stick and they went on the platen, as soon as you lifted your screen up, the shirt would just move around and get messed up. Smear the ink and all Smear that. Smear the ink, because yeah. the ink isn't dry. Like it's all wet until it goes through the dryer and then, and cures then it's it. cures, heat cures it. The heat cures it. Yeah. Oh God, I'm getting stressed thinking about yeah, it. And we had these like custom made all over platens that had like a foam layer on them. Mm -hmm. so that You made them. Yeah, so that like the seams, the shirt would even out and would kind of be roughly a flat surface. Yeah. Yeah, very, it was a very complex um, setup for novice screen printers. Yeah, we had never really done screen printing. But it printing. worked though. I mean, like, it did work. We made, oh, we made some great shit. We made some shirts that were like, you know, like, okay, wow, that's a very complex print. Yeah. Like, like screen printers nowadays are probably like, okay, that's a pain in the ass to print. They did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like massive foil prints. Gradient yeah. prints. Yeah. So the ha so that was we're getting to when you, when you're dealing with, you know, making, uh, you have one screen per color, but say your color, your printing is black, but say you wanted to make gray. Well, you can make another screen that has that color gray and you can make solid shapes or you could print in half tones, which are basically, it's like if you zoom in on a newspaper, it's just a bunch of dots. You can make larger size dots that will create sort of gradients and fades and things like that. So if you had, um, we had a couple that were like colors that would fade into one another. We had one that was like a neon pink to a neon yellow that faded. Mm -hmm. And we had one that was like a purple to a blue that faded in between. Right. Yeah. yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. And so those types of prints, you know, you're dealing with a, you have to start looking at the mesh count of the, of the, of the, the screens themselves. You have to have higher mesh counts for higher resolution for halftones. Certain, certain strokes and type faces, like size point sizes, like you couldn't have them to be too small or like they wouldn't wash out of the screen properly. Or if you have your halftones too small, they wouldn't expose properly because the ink on your transparency wouldn't block enough UV light and you wouldn't get that high resolution of dots. So you had to like- There was a, a lot of troubleshooting and every step took a lot of time. Right, so so many variables. So many variables. Yeah. So um, I think we had really, I think we had really delicate halftones on one of those all over prints. And I remember like- Blasting out the screen I a number we of times. I think we were using, I think we were also using a discharge ink. We were, yeah. And discharge inks, this is like such- This is so, <laughs> so niche. niche. People are like, what the hell are they talking about? Discharge inks were actually, you would, uh, it was basically a chemical process. The ink had a chemical in it that would strip uh, out the color of the actual garment. So you could print like a, with a really thin white ink on like a black garment. And normally it would look really faded and you wouldn't see the white ink um, with this, these water-based soft-handed inks. Um, but in order to get like a soft feel that wasn't like a big plasticky graphic, you know, like people have seen like t-shirts where like, oh, it's black ink on a white, it's white ink on a black t-shirt. And you can feel it. And you it's can, like 3D it, almost. It feels like it's a sheet of plastic that's plastisol ink but in order to like the what was really hot was the soft hand water-based inks that yeah. had a really soft hand feel and the water-based inks worked really great on light t-shirts but they on dark t-shirts they didn't work it's like it's like hair color right like yeah. my hair is brown if i wanted to have light gray hair i would have to bleach my hair to be yellow and then tone it to be white right. so same with this you use special discharge inks that would have a chemical reaction with a dye in the shirt and then when you cured it, it would bleach the shirt in that, in where the ink was. And also it would be like, you know, a lighter color. Ink. It's, 
junk. It did. Yeah, I'm pretty it's sure we shaved like, a decade off of our life with all the chemicals we were using. We had this thing we called the cancer gun. <laughs> it was basically a, a mini handheld pressure washer that shot some some, some chemical solvent. It reeked. The cancer. And gun. we were like, every time we use this, we we're like, oh my god, we're shaving years off our life because when you when you cure the plastisol inks, the plasticky ones, like once they're cured, they're not coming off. Yeah. Like that's the whole point. You cure them so they don't come off in the wash. So if something happened where we got a little bit of ink on a shirt and it went through the dryer and we took it off and, oh God, here's a smudge, then we'd use the cancer gun just to blast, to it, blast it off. It worked and it would, really and well. it worked great, which yeah. is like what was in that chemical. I don't remember. I don't remember. It was, we had like surely a venting have, system that we built. It should, was surely great. wouldn't have been legal in California. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> anyway, so. But so, about that, like that also brings up the next thing. It's like our costs of goods oh God. was massive. Like yeah. the, our, our material costs are massive. Like the profit on a job, usually people like in most industries, I feel like it's like every step should make like a hundred percent markup. Yeah. We're, we're making not. like screen printing is different. It's like, it's difficult because you're not making a hundred percent markup. So if you messed a job up and had like the order just completely wrong and had to redo something, you had to eat the cost of all the material for the shirts. Yeah. Your cost of, it's not like it's a wash where you, oh, I have to redo the job and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna it's like, okay, 50% went to, went to the cost of goods and 50% is my profit. I'm redoing it, so I'll eat my profit, but I'm gonna break even. No, 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 If you had to reorder shirts, your margin was only like maybe, what, like 15, 20% max? Yeah, because you have to think like, if you are coming to us and you're ordering t-shirts and you wanna sell those t-shirts for $25, you're not gonna pay $20 to have your shirts printed. You're gonna pay Probably you're gonna, ten dollars. You're gonna to want to pay twelve fifty max for your shirts, so yeah. you can double the price. And, and everybody wanted American Apparel shirts, which so were Ameri more expensive. American Apparel blanks, I think, were like seven fifty, eight bucks a pop. Yeah, so compared now, to Gildan, which were like between two and four dollars a pop. Right. So now all of a sudden, it's like you want you've got an eight dollar just for the shirt, and now you've got a so you're you're spending money on a four dollar print job is your maximum you're gonna spend. Yeah, and if you messed up one of and those American Apparel shirts, and you also only wanted to do like twenty of them. So yeah. it's like all this setup that gets divided over fewer shirts. So the, there was, it was hard to make a lot of money. Yeah. You weren't going to get rich screen printing basically. No, no. <laughs> and so obviously like we were paying for our costs. We were paying for our blanks up front. We were paying for rent for the studio. And these are we all- We weren't making money to pay for this clothing company that we wanted to have. But also like we couldn't afford to hire anybody to help us. So we were doing all of this like on top of- other freelance gigs, you were in school. Well, I was, this was, a, I, I set up all this during the summer between yeah. medical school. So it was, it was easy for me to dedicate all my time to it. And I figured out the process pretty quickly. You were really good at it. And it was just all end. like, I mean, and, and for somebody like me, like I'm very science. So like, it was always, okay, here's the process. One variable change at a time. Okay. That didn't work. And figure out each step in a, in a sort of a, a logical stepwise fashion. Right. And eventually we had a process that worked and it worked well. Um, but I remember like it was that one job that killed us on your birthday, July 4th. Yeah. So the job was for this trades company who were doing this like big event and they had a big budget. So it was actually a promotional endeavor from the Newfoundland government, I feel like. It was, or it was like government funded somehow. It was somehow affiliated with the government and they basically had this massive budget to promote the trades. So they had this like thing where they're going to throw this big festival, have free swag before it was swag. And they wanted the guy who was like in his like, I got this much money to spend. What can I get? I'm like, all right, we'll do all over print hoodies, all over print t-shirts. We'll do all the craziest stuff. And he's like, all right, let's double the order. Let's do this. And I was like, holy shit. And I remember I was like, I think the order was like 1500 or something. 
the order like fifteen hundred shirts. Whatever. I remember. I, I remember looking at the order. I think it was for like the budget was like forty or fifty grand. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, let's do it. And I was like, this is awesome. And we're gonna like do the craziest printing. And it oh my was god, a fucking nightmare. We had these like four foot wide by four foot wide screens, and we they were just doing kept failing all over multicolored discharge gradient prints with half tones, and it was taking. We had so much like time between and we're shooting with we're also with water-based ink so you always have to spray the screen to keep it wet because like plastic ink just never dries you could leave it out for a week and you just keep pushing ink whereas water-based ink would crust into the screen and block the screen yeah so you had to keep spraying it to keep it moist and discharged ink would eat the emulsion yeah so between all of us trying to get this job this one run done of just this one hoodie of the entire product line it was like the i remember when the halftone screen started falling apart halfway, and through, we, the, halfway we, through the job I it think wasn't I just even like, halfway through i think we had like 10 of them done because we had so much troubleshooting up until the point right of getting everything lined up and stuff properly and we finally went we got so the many screen blanks. up we got the screen up we had the everything registered we had the ink in place we had our first ones coming off the conveyor dryer the prints were looking pristine yeah they were white and blue on black yeah and then the the screen just started like the emulsion just fell apart and it was like their design just disappeared. And I was like, like oh my God. Oh my God. I think you and just, I think you just like, I, you slumped over, collapsed on the ground started and started crying. crying. <laughs> I was missing my birthday dinner. Right. I was bawling and I was like, this is the worst ever. And it's not like you can just go and print off a new screen. This was a 24, you had to wait for that shit to dry. And it we was had 24 limit, hours. We had and limited we had a, big screens too. Yes. And I think we were using all of them for this one job. We were. Because of multiple colors. And we were on a deadline. Yes. So it, I, then I had to go mix more, more emulsion, had to coat the screen, had to put it in the dark room, had to let it dry. We had to put the dehumidifier in there to try to like Accelerate hurry it up. the color. Yeah. And then I had to reshoot the screen on the UV table. And then I had to repressure wash it. Then you had to let that dry. Then you had to reset the screens up, re-register them because it was a multicolor print. Mm-hmm. Had to do all, but I had to do all the screens because I think it was a three-color print because there was like orange on it, blue on it, and white on it. Oh yeah, there was orange, it wasn't was a, there? It was a three-color print, discharge print. So I had to do all the three screens again. Yeah, so it wasn't. It was white. We had to hit it with white, and then we put blue on top of the white because the blue was see-through or something. I don't remember. Exactly. I don't remember. Either way, it was. We only had nightmare. like three or four of those big screens. So I basically had to like pressure wash out, clean off those screens, start from scratch, and then recoat them, reshoot them in the UV light, dry the, dry, blast them out with the screen print with the um, pressure washer, then reset them up, re-register everything, and then we could print them again. It was like a full day to get it back up to, up to speed. Yeah. After that job, I think both of us were like, this is done. We're do this done. Anymore. And there were a number, like this was over a couple of years and we had done a couple of like lines for Bolt Creative, like shirt lines for Bolt Creative where we sold a bunch and then we didn't sell a lot and we were experimenting the with The bold like, shirts though for me were the most fun. Yeah, because we could do small runs of whatever we wanted. Right, like it was a real labor of love. Yes. It was like, I didn't worry about like how much time I was putting into like setting everything up for our own shirts. Dude, it's exactly like YouTube. I love making videos for ourselves, but I don't like making videos for other people. I think we liked screen printing for ourselves, but we didn't like screen printing for other people. Yeah, it was like any sort of medium where you create something. And for me, like whether it was be like uh, drawings when I used to draw on like my sketchbook, I used to do a lot of stuff like Prismacolor. And I loved, you know, like creating the, creating art is like 
you know, conventional art is like a little bit of a grind. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily like, I didn't really find it. Like it was therapeutic in a way, like blending the colors with the, like they're very creamy uh, colored pencils, mm -hmm. but it was like the finished product of being able to step back and look at something. Like, I love that. It's like, I created this. Yeah. And that was, that feeling for me has always been stuff like whether it was BMX videos or whether it's like making like helicopter videos now, like, or like aerial imagery. Mm -hmm. That's just, to me is just beautiful. Yeah or it was making screen printing shirts, you know, and seeing something from concept to design to like something coming off of a conveyor dry and ready to like wear. Yeah. Like for me, that was it, right? Yeah, I love, that's something that I loved about it too, was that like we would design these shirts and it wouldn't just be a print. We would like re-tag them. We'd cut the tags off. We'd print our own tags. Then we'd put the hang tags on ourselves and everything was like branded out and designed. And then like our friends would be wearing our shirts. And like at the time we were break dancing and like the B-boys would wear our shirts, yeah. you know what I mean? And so, and we were doing the shirts for the B-boy crew as well. So it just, we had this little community going and it was just a really great time. Like we kind of like helped them with their um, event and sponsored their event and it was just this really cool thing. Like they come and hang out at the studio all the time. And it, the studio became this place where we just kind of all like Converged. congregated. Yeah. It was in the middle of downtown. So we'd be shooting, you know, promotional videos for this B-Boy competition. And we would just meet at the studio. Right. Like that's, what, so while that part of Bold, and that was only the first two or three years of Bold, while that part of Bold Creative was very stressful and we were kind of figuring out what we wanted to do and what we didn't want to do, there's also a lot of cool and fun community things involved with that um, in terms of like friends dropping by the studio and wearing your stuff. And, yeah. I mean, you know. there was, there's always, there's always sort of two sides of things. Yeah. And you're always going to look back with rose colored sunglasses. To remember the good times. Too. Yeah. I'm going to tell you about a bad time that happened. Do you remember when I remember we, a lot of times we were pressure washing the screens <laughs> and it leaked into the bar downstairs oh and the God. guy came up and fucking reamed you a new one. <laughs> he was so mad. He was so he mad. He was like this, like, he was like your quintessential audio dude. Yeah. But he was the bar manager. So we were like- to So add, our studio was on top of a bar. Right. Downtown. Yeah. And they'd always have like these like rock shows. Oh, that was another thing. We'd be there at like 11, 12 o'clock at night trying to get a job done. And there'd be like an insane punk rock show down the basement. And everything would be like so shaking loud and, and shaking. It was so, it was so stressful yeah. and annoying. And by like three o'clock, they'd be finally done. And we'd be so cranky in time. We're like, oh, finally. And like, I remember we were doing a, we were doing, it happened at least twice. We were doing a job and it was like the, <laughs> the vapor barrier washout booth that was supposed to be waterproof ended up busted leaking. open. Yeah. And then like, of course the water goes down and through the floor and the floor is like probably a suboptimal subfloor with a thin layer of crappy concrete right into open rafters below. And just water's just dripping through the boards. And this dude comes up big fucking guy comes up, shut it down. What's going on up here? It's leaking. You can't do this. I'm just like, he, he owned the space. Yeah, he must be the owner. He was the owner. Yeah. I'd be pissed if some punk kid yeah. was doing a screen printing operation. I was just like, I don't want to deal with this right now. But, this is like but one other time, the upstairs tent, because this is like a multi-floor building, somebody's washer busted open and broke. Oh, yeah. And water started pouring into the studio all the way through in and down into that. the bar. And he came up, boom, boom, boom. And he started, what the fuck is going on? I know, and we were like, like, it's not us this time. <laughs> we're just like, not it's me, not buddy. Us. Oh, my God. <laughs> Take your misdirected rage elsewhere, Take bucko. it upstairs, dude. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was like primed already because it happened once, right? Yeah, but it wasn't oh, us. I forgot time. about that. Remember that? Yeah. Oh God, there's so many stressful times. Okay, so that was the first um, 
one third of bold creative. And we we're at 48 minutes. So we should clue this up. Okay. After we realized that this was too stressful, we didn't want to do screen printing anymore. We overthought too much about the clothing company. And we didn't really have time it. for it anymore, right? We didn't. Like, we were over it. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I, it's Our goals cool, had changed. But I don't really want to do the streetwear company anymore. It's been like over a year and a bit now. And I'm just like, you know what? You were getting into menswear. and Yeah. And also like, because at the time I was going through medical school, right? Yeah. So like I didn't have time to dedicate to this anymore. My, I don't no longer had summers off because I was now into like the clinical part of my rotations where it's like, okay, no more summers off. Yeah. And we were getting ready to buy a house and move out of our parents' house. Yeah. And I was going to start residency shortly. So it was like, you know what? And then I was like getting more into suits because I had to buy a suit for residency. They got assessed with like how suits are supposed to fit. And then it became like a whole menswear thing, not like streetwear. Yeah. And we kind of just phased out of it, which was okay. Yeah. It just wasn't meant yeah. to be. So we sold the screen printing studio. Yeah. We bought our house and when we bought our house, we moved our, our wide format printer to the house. But when we bought our house, we were looking for a, a space that we could have our business in because here's the thing about having a studio. And we, we see this on the internet all the time. The big goal is to have a studio, right? You're a YouTuber, you're working out of your basement. Oh, you see this on the internet, you mean? You see it on the internet. People, the big goal is to have a big studio, like yeah. the big YouTubers, right? But having a studio is not always cracked up to be, as we've just said, but from a standpoint too of, um, like getting up and having to physically leave your nice, cozy, warm house <laughs> to drive to your studio. And if you're lucky, you have a parking lot. If not, like us, you're driving all over downtown looking for parking. It's probably going to be raining. Parking meters. Parking meters. You're out every two hours feeding the meter with coins. You may not have coins. And then... Yeah, but also like work-life separation too is one thing. A lot of people value that. That's true. That's they want to be able to go to the office and yeah. leave it at the office and come home and not have to worry about it. So that's... Yeah. Definitely. There's lifestyle creep there. For sure. But what happened or with job me, creep, I should say. Yeah. What happened with me is that like the studio became a really stressful place for me to be. It was uncomfortable. It was cold. I didn't like walking to my car at night because I was staying there late at night working on client work. So I just found myself going there like once or twice a week. And, yeah. and I was like, this isn't worth spending money on because I could just stay at home. Mm -hmm. So when we looked for a house, we were looking for a place that had space that we could have an office we could have a basement studio. We could have a room where our wide format printer would be. And we lucked out in finding something that was actually perfect. And when you have a, well, in Canada, when you have a business in your house, like we were able to- You still can do that here. You can, yeah, we were able to claim, you know, it on our tax return. Yeah, like you've got a basement you've dedicated to a photo studio. You've got a room you've dedicated to production, like with the wide format printer and all mm -hmm. that and, and other sort of hands-on production of things. Um, and all of that square footage wise is, is tax deductible. You can write it off on your tax returns as home use for business, right? Like a home office. Yeah. So that's something to think about if you guys listening are, you know, starting a business. Yeah. You're already paying for the space. If you're not using it all for personal, yeah. then you might as well use it for business. Try to save some tax, save some on your taxes. Definitely. When we moved into the house, bold became basically a micro marketing company. We got rid of the production side. We were still doing some wide format photographic printing, selling some of our own prints. And also we filled our house with our own art. We did. Yeah. yeah. Whether it be canvases or, you know, paper prints, we were basic, basically able to print off any size custom artwork since we were shooting it all ourselves as well. Right. The majority of our business was actually real estate photography and some graphic design work. And I was lucky that I was able to offer these two services side by side. So if I had an idea for a branding thing, like I could shoot it as well. 
So a lot of my clients were clients who needed photography and graphic design services, which worked out really well. I had a couple of really amazing, loyal clients that stuck with me the entire time that I'll be grateful for forever because they were just, it was such a great experience to work with these clients. Yeah. And people always talk about like nightmare clients, but like you always can think about the clients that were the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've had some dreams to work with. I've had some nightmare clients and I've learned a lot from those clients. Mm. Those, when you have experiences with nightmare clients, you, you learn the red flags, you learn the red flags so that when another client comes along, you can read them and, and either fire them or not work with them before do not engage, do not engage. Exactly. But I was lucky enough to have a number of really amazing clients. Um, that definitely outweighs, you know, the bad stuff. Yeah. And bold at this point was basically effect, essentially just you at this point. It was me. I was in residency here. Now I had kind of checked out from that side of our partnership. Yeah. We weren't doing as much video work anymore. Cause that was basically like when we did video work, it was you doing that. And I was just second shooter. You were doing the editing and everything. Yeah. So bold at this point, you were, you were basically full-time Dr. Do doing Instagram fashion on the side. <laughs> we had our blog and then it was basically just me doing photography and design. I was doing working out of the home, working out of the house every now and then I would, um, hire, so I, did, I didn't have any staff, it was just me. But every now and then I would bring on another freelancer to work on a project, whether it was a writer or a creative director or another video producer or editor, depending on the project. So I had a couple of go-to people that I could call depending on the job, whether I was gonna- You had, you had a network of people who were reliable. Absolutely, I did. And I think that was honestly the best way to go instead of building a company where I had employees that where I was responsible for their salaries, it was a lot easier to work um, on a job-by-job -job basis with other freelancers. I worked with a, a programmer, like a coder web guy for a, a long time as well. I think though you hit a ceiling that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs hit where you reach max capacity of what you can do. Yeah. But you also have to look at, you know, what kind of capacity do you want to have when you're not just you, but anybody who's working in a, in a creative field It's like, what kind of capacity do you want to have? Do you want to have an owner that takes on more risk, but you have more reward potentially, mm -hmm. or do you want to take on less risk, uh, go with an established company that's already out there and get paid a wage that's theoretically more guaranteed right. than if you own the company or uh, but it's less, right? And yeah. like when you're working with freelancers, everybody's running their own small little micro business. Right. So everybody wants as big cut as they can. Whereas if you take the jump and start hiring people who just want to come in nine to five and just clock a paycheck, that's, I think, how you really expand. And when people start, you know, trying to, when you start making money from employees, I think that's how you really can maximize, um, if, you're, if making money is your goal, right? But that yeah. obviously you just wanted to do the work you wanted to do and it's it's fine. Yeah, I never got to the point, see like I was busy during our last couple of years of Bold, but I never got to the point where I was busy and making enough money to hire somebody full-time. Right. It was actually better off for me to just do freelance and budget it in per project basis. Mm -hmm. And I think you carved out a niche that was sought after in like small circles. They knew your, people knew your work, they valued your work and they respected your work and they'd pay you the rage, the, the wage you commanded. Yeah. And there was no, there was not, not a lot of nickel and dime. The only people that nickel and dimed you were the people who didn't really know you. Yes. And didn't really see, they probably got your name contact from one of your other clients, 
but they didn't trust you implicitly like your your core clients did. And therefore mm-hmm. they were kind of just like always trying to like nickel and dime you. And you're like, you know what? I don't have to take your work. Yeah. I'm going to go with the clients I know pay the bills. And it only took that one time you getting burned and not getting paid that one time. Yeah. From a, a random client who hired you for like a video project. Yeah. And you ended up paying your subcontractors with the deposit. Yeah. So I want to talk about this for a second because I think it's a good example of like when you're working, when you're the lead on a project and you're working with other people, this woman hired me to shoot a video project for her. And we had multiple meetings. We discussed budget. We discussed breakdown of budget, when we were going to get paid, how much we were going to get paid. I could not do this job by myself. I didn't have enough knowledge in video. So I hired two freelancers. I hired an audio guy and I hired a video guy who would be the main shooter. I was just going to be the person who kind of- B-cam. I was B-cam. Becky-cam. The go-between, dealing with the client. I would probably help edit. We agreed on- a deposit. We agreed on a total price and she was going to pay half, um, after the shoot and the rest after the second day or something like that. I hired these two guys. We went and shot the job. We spent the entire day at the job. And after weeks, I never heard from this client again and she did not pay me. And I owed these two freelancers money because obviously it was my time. And if somebody doesn't pay me and it's just me, okay, like that really sucks. And that's not a situation I want to be in, but that's a loss I take. And that's a risk I take when you work with people. Um, and I don't remember if, I don't think we had a contract like signed. We had like emails back and forth, but we didn't have like an official agreement. So always get an official agreement. But those, if you chose to take her to small claims court, they would look, if you have that in writing a paper trail of the mm-hmm. agreement, that's the intent, right? Right. Like the intent was to pay you this much and it's all clearly laid out. So that would have been fine. Yeah. Well, we were yeah. living in Vancouver at this point because the right, job cause you already was, moved. Yeah. I'd right moved. before we moved. So after harassing this woman for six months to pay half, she finally paid me and half, 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 um, the half that she paid me was enough to cover my two freelancers. And I would make zero dollars. The ones you hired. The ones I hired. Yeah, because you hired them and therefore they're looking to you to get paid, not looking to her to get paid. Exactly. So I took a loss and I paid my freelancers. Yeah, and that's the risk you take as a business owner. Yeah. You know, you people always think, oh, as a business owner, you're you're making money off the backs of your employees and you're taking advantage, blah, blah, blah. It's like there's high risk, high reward. That's yeah. higher risk demands higher compensation. Otherwise, everybody would do it and get paid handsomely. Yeah. But not everyone's going to do that, right? Right. So in that instance, you put yourself out there. You were hoping to make money off of it and you got burned. Yep. But that's it, right? When I take jobs like that and hire people and something like that happens, I always think about if it was me in the situation, if I got hired by somebody and that person didn't get paid, how would I feel if I didn't get paid about the whole situation and I would want to be getting paid. It's not, it's not my, it's not the risk that I took with the client. If you're hiring me, you pay me. If you don't get paid, you pay me. Yeah. And that's the stance I took. Yeah, with they're, guys. they're not taking on, why are they taking on your business risk? Exactly. It's your business risk. I think that even if she had not paid me the deposit, mm-hmm. I would have still paid them out of my pocket Yeah, because that's the right thing to do. It is true. When yeah. you hire somebody. So I, before we end the podcast, I want to talk about a couple of things that we've learned from the business that have transferred over to doing YouTube full-time and working with brands and dealing with clients. Because 
It's a similar kind of role when you're a freelancer dealing with clients. Clients are coming to you to hire you to do work for them for their business, to help promote their business, not from from your standpoint, but you're creating things for them to use for promotion. Whereas Mm -hmm. brands on YouTube or podcast are coming to you to help promote their brand through your platform. Right. But here's the difference though, is that when a client comes to you as a creative, not as a person on like a creator, but a creative, like as a designer, a photographer, a video person, like a freelance person, they're coming to you for you to assist bring their creative vision to life. Correct. Yeah. Whereas what the difference and the subtle difference, but major difference for when brands come to creators, creators mm-hmm. is that they're coming to you now to create your vision with a spin on their, to sell their product right. to your audience. Yeah. And that's where the difference is. And it changes the dynamic entirely. A hundred percent. It is so much different, better, <laughs> definitely. Because there's already like, you're hoping at the point when you're working with a brand that a brand wants to work with you because they've seen your work and they like what you do. And they're excited to work with you because there's more implicit trust in you as the creator rather than I feel like when you were a freelancer, it was always like, you had to prove yourself. To it's the like, client. make my logo bigger, add more, add more text to this already packed in thing because I have to have all the information in this because everybody needs to know how awesome my product is. And if I don't put every little point in here, it's going to be lost. Yeah. Not realizing they're sinking the whole thing by making it totally unpalatable from a design standpoint. Right. But with, yeah, with the creatives now it, with in the creator uh, industry, yeah. it's kind of like, your work is known and there's a trust. There's already a level of trust there. Right. They trust what you're going to do because they know that you know how to connect with your audience the best. Exactly. But I do want to talk about a couple of things that we've learned that kind of do cross over. So mm-hmm. we mentioned this earlier, but um, getting things or writing contracts. Um, something that I've learned going through being a freelancer that I didn't always do, but I definitely always do now is have a contract or some kind of agreement in place that very clearly outlines the deliverables, payment schedule, how much you're going to get paid, the scope of the project, because there's a thing called scope creep where you're working on a project and then suddenly there's more revisions than were expected or more things that need to be done or like suddenly they need an extra thing, but now there's a deadline. So you kind of do it really quickly, but you haven't had time to discuss, you know, you, you tell them how much it's going to cost, but there's no real agreement there. And then it gets really cloudy. So yeah. communication is the main issue. So yeah, communication. So for me now, when I work, when I freelance or when I work with a brand, it's very important for me to outline every deliverable, every deadline, when a project is going to go live, when they're going to get to see it for approval, um, how much we're getting paid, who owns what. That's a big one too, the who owns the content. Yes, definitely. And I, I, as a creator, we always think, as creators, we always think it's better for us to own content because you never know when that content might be repackaged for or might be of value some other way. Yes. You know, like I always think of the example, like you're on, you're out shooting, you get hired to create content for somebody or a brand and you're out shooting something and all of a sudden like, you might have a bear like riding down the street on a bicycle and be like, yeah, okay, the best wow, image of your life. That's a and bear. Then, and then it could be like, that's like a viral video right there. But like now Coca-Cola owns it because they hired you to do it. You know, it's, yeah. so it's, I think it's very important to own your own content that you create. Definitely. So it's, it's and really pay, have them pay for a license essentially. Yes, exactly. So we always grant a license to use, to use and share. 
Um, but we make that clear in the contract or in the agreement. Just, you know, hey, we own this. And if a, if a client or a brand wants to own the rights outright, then that costs a lot. Yeah. And that's a standard. Lot. That is standard. If you're working on a project for a client or even for a brand, um, it's probably not a bad idea to outline how many revisions are included in your rate. Because I have worked with some clients in the past where I didn't specifically say there are two revisions <laughs> included with this rate. And we have gone on to revision 12, revision 13, and now this is getting expensive. And now I'm telling you- You've eaten into your profits already. Well, yeah, you're working for free basically at that I had, point. I had one project that went into like revision 13 and I had to rev I had to revise the quote three times and just say like, just so you know, if you want this changed, this is gonna cost X amount of dollars. And every time you have a change, it's gonna be this amount. Of, and and they it feel, went up and up to like 10 grand. And then they feel like you're taking advantage of them because they feel like they should have infinite revisions your original contract didn't specify it. Exactly. And you feel like they're taking advantage of you. Because, because at this point I'm making $2 an hour because I've been working yeah, so hard at your, it. Yeah. Your, your hourly rate asymptotically approaches zero as you are diluting your finite pay with infinite numbers of hours. Yeah. So I think the moral of this is that communication is key. Outline everything ahead of time, including and not limited to your deliverables, the project scope, the budget, when you're going to get paid, how you're going to get paid, in what currency you're going to get paid. And then something I like to do, I, I did this with all my clients when I had the marketing company. I do this with all the brands that I work with now is I, well, if, if timeline allows, I like to create a work back schedule. And what that looks like is if we have a project, say Chris comes to me and says, I want you to make a YouTube video for me about my flower socks. I want you to make a YouTube video about me and my flower socks. So I'll say, okay, like, We'll have a discussion about those flower socks. This is my rate. You say, yes, cool, contract is signed. I own the content. This is my rate. You're gonna pay my rate. You're gonna pay it within 30 days. Um, now I go back to the drawing board and say, okay, like this is the date where we've agreed upon to launch this video. This is my work back schedule. So on, on this date, the video goes live. On this date, you're gonna get the video to look at, a proof of the video for approval probably a week before. On this date, you're gonna receive a um, outline of what this video is gonna be for approval. And on this date, we're gonna have a meeting or whatever. And sometimes it's not as extensive as that. Sometimes it's just like, this is a go live date. This is the work. This is the date you're gonna get for approval. And then they'll always get um, like an outline of what the project is going. It's just so, because again, communication, we're being clear. I, I never want a client to expect something and not have their expectations met. I'd rather, rather be- blow them out of the water. I'd rather be very clear with expectations and then over exceed without like unexpectedly than- The other way around. Than the other way around. So when I do a job for a client or a brand and we're working on a video together, I will send them a, an entire outline of what that video is going to be, what the concept is, a tentative title of what that thing is going to be, uh, timestamps and all of the topics and a couple of talking points that I'm going to discuss um, within that um, project scope. There you go. Communication. Communication. All right. All right. Well, okay. That's it. So if you like the uh, podcast, give it a five star. Five stars review. only, please. Thank you so much for listening. Five dollars only, please. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of Tuxedo Time where we discussed our company, Bull Creative. I don't even know if we talked about it all, but 
there it is. A couple of stories, some experiences, and how that kind of set us up for doing what we do now. There you go. The whole thing is still a learning experience, and we're still learning along the way, but yeah, it's all good. There you go. We'll end on a sad tromboner. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll catch you on the next one.